Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dungeon Masters Dojo Podcast. This is a show for game masters and players alike. We hope to bring you tips and tricks to elevate your game and develop the art of dungeon mastery. I'm your host, Louis Aponte, and these are your Dungeon Masters, Scott Labby and Bill Robotile. Let's head to the dojo and see what they have in store for us today. Hey, Scott. Hey, Bill. Hey, Lou. How are you? And we have a special guest, Dave Wilds, with us. From hey, how y'all doing? Retro RPG Reviews, one of my favorite YouTube channels. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. Great to, to be back with you guys at the DMD. Good to see you yet once again. I really liked your episode that you did on Star Frontiers, one of my all-time favorite games, so it was uh, really nice to see that. Yeah, and, the video is doing very well. Uh, it was very popular. I'm probably going to be doing uh, some more videos on that because like, there's, a, there's the uh, three-part adventure that the first part is in the box set, so I'll probably be looking at those modules. I think I, I told you I still have my set from high school. Right. Which was was a a long time ago because back then books were made out of paper, <laughs> and, and <laughs> you didn't find them on tablets like well, you do now. So I look forward to that very very much. Um, and it's kind of cool that you can find all the Star Frontiers materials, um, relatively inexpensive on Drive Through RPG. Not only is it on there for download, but you can also pretty much everything they have is available for print on demand. That is awesome. That is awesome. So why do we have why do we have Dave here other than it's cool to hang out with him? I, thought that, I thought that was it. That, <laughs> that's really the only what reason. What other reason we do we need? <laughs> I believe it's to talk about OSR. Yeah, we yes. had to uh, pull one of our resident experts in yeah. on the OSR. So phone call was made to Dave, and, and, and here we are with him. to He's going to school us. On the OSR. Yeah, because I have questions. School you on the old school. Yes. <laughs> what is an OSR? Old school revival or uh, is generally, um, or old school renaissance, depending. on The R means different things to different people. But generally, the OSR is a look back at uh, gaming as it was in the early 70s and 80s. It's actually not necessarily that specific, but it can be a drive towards less uh, codification in your RPG and more DM control in your game, um, more reliance on uh, maintaining your torches and supplies. And so that kind of thing is a lot more important with the old school. And so you have um, death is a little <laughs> bit more, more frequent or possible. And depending on how you uh, play it. But in general, it's an idea that uh, you're going to be playing a simpler game. A game that is less codified. So that gives the players and the DM a lot more options to just kind of roll with it. And let the story develop without having to worry about mechanics. Nice. Nice. Now. Sounds perfect, actually. Uh, yeah, actually. It's just <laughs> flashbacks to the real yeah. early days, you know, Chainmail, which had like maybe 14 rules in it, by my recollection. Um, how did this all come, come about? I mean, and why? Well, it's really an interesting uh, evolution. And I'm pretty, pretty sure that uh, Osric, the old school uh, Renaissance and Index compilation, uh, was the first to put out a rule set that emulated 
uh, a previous edition, which in that case was first edition AD&D. And that came about by looking at the, uh, at that time, the third edition of the game had been out and they had uh, put out the old GL, the OGL, um, and which was basically Wizards of the Coast pretty much trying to set 3.5 D&D as the default role-playing game. And if you recall that era, there was third-party uh, material from just about everywhere. And so they figured out that they could uh, not have, they didn't have to do 3.5. They could do anything they wanted. And so since those books and were out of print, they redid them. And the advantage to that is that you have a very well-written rule set and as much as I love Gary Gygax, ancient Gygaxian is a little bit hard to uh, translate sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's... That's a good way of putting it, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to, you know, uh, relate it to uh, hieroglyphs at times, but <laughs> you kind of had to know how to speak it before you could translate it. So you have sort of a Rosetta Stone that teaches you uh, what the rules really meant. And I know that I, as I read through Osric, I actually learned things that, oh, that's how that was supposed to work. I never did it that way. <laughs> Prime example, um, if you roll a D6 for surprise, all right, let's say, for example, the uh, monster surprises on a one to three. All right. If the monster rolls a three, they're actually going to go three times before you get to go. If they roll <laughs> two, they'll go two times. And if they roll a one, They'll go one time, you know, on the surprise round or, or if, if the players are, are surprised in that respect. So that's a little obscure rule that I would, had no idea because you normally it was just like, okay, I rolled the whatever it is. And, oh, the monster, you, you're surprised and we do a surprise round and then we move on. I was on the round. So there's, there's a lot of interesting rules and clarifications that you'll find in that rule set that is uh, pretty interesting. So. I highly recommend if you like first edition Dungeons and Dragons, check out Osric. But then, of course, you had, it moved on a little bit. So then you had um, Labyrinth Lord. Labyrinth Lord is a emulation of the Maldvay Cook rule set, the, or BX, basic and expert sets, uh, which you're probably the Malv box set and the blue box set, which is a lot of people's introduction that came out in 1981. Uh, to Dungeons and Dragons, and everybody moved on to AD and D. But of course, that particular rule set has gained a lot of uh, nostalgia and appreciation for its clarity and its simplicity, and so that a lot of people play that version of the game. And what you'll find with OSR is you'll find that different rule sets um, take on and emulate certain other earlier editions of the game. For example, uh, Swords and Wizardry actually emulates the white box set the very first rule set of dungeons and dragons with a lot more clarity and some options for different rules and things like that inside of it that also uh, helps make um, make the game easier to play smoother to play so the other advantage is you'll get some kind of like some tweaks and little house rules that the author will add into the game that they like so why all these rules variations you answered the part of the question a little bit just now, but can't we just get a copy of our favorite rule set, um, especially now with print-on-demand being so readily available? What's the what's the draw 
Well, as I said, ancient Gygaxian is a little hard to translate sometimes. So you have a, you have 40 years of gameplay, so the rules can be uh, rewritten for clarity, and you can add in the errata that they meant to add in, or or maybe certain rules that were everybody played wrong because it was, the rule was written poorly is now rewritten for clarity. Uh, so that helps out uh, and makes it easier for newer players, players that have never played those old games before, to learn how to play the game. That was cut and dry. Yeah, pretty, pretty simple. Very simple. So for somebody that's just getting into OSRs, what would you recommend for them? And um, what are your favorite rules, you know, your rule set, I should say? Well, there's a lot of outstanding, outstanding uh, rule set. We are, we are really in a renaissance of old school uh, right now. And, and in, it has been kind of going in this direction for a lot of years. The uh, uh, ability for people to become their own publisher and the ability of people to get uh, crowdfunding through Kickstarter allows them to ease the cost and the burden of such a, of getting things together. And you have a lot of great uh, creators who are outstanding organizers and have put together some amazing material for us. Um, I, I think of Old School Essentials, uh, which is an emulation of Maldve Cook, as I mentioned earlier. But the interesting thing about Old School Essentials is that it is a bullet-pointed rule set. There's no uh, fluff in that game or rule set. It's You open these nice little digest-sized booklets, and they just lay out bullet point by bullet point the rule system. So there, if you're in play and you look it up, even for spells or monsters or whatever, boom, there it is, and it's written clear, and everything that you need to know is uh, directly there. However, I will say that um i have a i have a, I have a certain like of the fluff <laughs> yeah. i like a little fluff i don't have to have a lot of fluff but I, li- I like to have some of that when i'm reading it makes the rule set more enjoyable um so in regards to um, my personal favorite game uh, i like astonishing swordsman and sorcerers of hyperborea i love that game and that game is one of those games that really um breaks all the rules of uh, what you're supposed to do and does it so well that it it makes it uh, even better. For example, generally you don't couple uh, the setting with the rules. That's that's kind of like a no-no. You, the rules are the rules, and then the DM takes the rules, and they make their own campaign setting, and they do whatever they want with it. And they customize it, however. However, what... Uh, um, uh, Talanian did with his rule set was he allowed, um, customized the rules and the classes and the combat system and the magic and all that kind of stuff with his Hyperborean setting. It's kind of like a cross between Conan the Barbarian and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. And if you're into that kind of pulp, dark fantasy kind of role playing, it'll be in heaven. Uh, the world itself is bizarre it's kind of like a hexagonal flat earth plane Uh, the sun never really reaches a zenith at noon it hovers on the edge of the uh of the uh, plane never cutting getting quite high enough and giving everything kind of an orangish pinkish hue rather than the normal brightness you get from a noonday sun Uh, and it's also colder 
Uh, so you have a colder plain, um, and you have a mix of uh, creatures from Greek mythos, traditional D&D, and Lovecraftian creatures. You have Yithians and the Great Race and Shagoth, and you have the great old ones like Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth and all of that is involved in there. Plus you have Helios and Artemis and those various gods as well. So um, it's a very intriguing setting. And then of course the classes are all customized to take advantage of this setting. So I, I started a campaign with that about a month and a half ago. We're in the session seven and uh, wow. Everybody loves it, um, and I've gone from 5th edition to that. Hmm. Sounds intriguing. I like this man's professionalism so much that he segued into the next two questions without... Yeah. Ap ap I, seamlessly and, <laughs> and in chronological order. <laughs> it's almost like he has him in front of him. <laughs> it's amazing. I am I am intrigued, and you've sold me on it. So when are we playing? Uh, I got, yeah. yeah, you can get on Vorpal board. <laughs> find a night that I'm free. Uh, my DJ business has really taken off lately, so I don't have any free nights except for my Sunday, which is my in-person game. Yeah, and um, that's that's not too bad of a drive. So I think if we start now, yeah, if you guys start, we'll, you could be here by Sunday. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. sounds good. We'll bring a. Uh, bring pizza and beer or something so it is this is this a a, a made-up universe this uh hyperborea you said it was kind of like a blend between lovecraft and robert e howard and those two guys spent a lot of time uh corresponding on their stuff how much of it does it take from that old old pulpy kind of genre or or is it like a reinvention well, it's it's def definitely Jeffrey Tolanian's take on it. All right, so that it's it's, it's his baby, um, but Hyperborea itself um, was originally mentioned in the Greek myths, and Clark Ashton Smith ran with that, and he created his own pre-human uh, in a prehistory kind of world, a world that existed before history. You know, you have. Interesting thing about human history is, you know, they only, we've only been around, what, 10,000 years as far as modern history goes, but we were in our current form for under 200,000 years before that. So what was there? Maybe it was something, maybe there were civilizations that rose and fell. And so you have that kind of prehistory that, uh, that uh, Clark Ashton Smith um, built on. And then you had Robert E. Howard, who also built on that same thing. And hey, children as it were right so uh uh jeffrey Tolanian ta has taken that and of course he's infused it with lovecraft and and there was lovecraft in original conan stories right? so that there's definitely a lot of things to build on there uh so it's a definitely a dark dark fantasy game to be sure uh, you have uh takes on uh shadow over Innsmouth which is one of the stories and the modules are really excellently written. Um, so if you want to get started in, in the game, there's a, they're actually getting ready to release the third printing of the game. They just finished the Kickstarter and it really well. So that probably will be around in March or so, uh, but you can still pick up the um, PDFs on drive through RPG. And I'm pretty darn sure he has copies left of the player's handbook. 
which I have discovered is the most useful thing out of that. The, uh, the current rule book is 600 pages long and includes all the, essentially the monster manual, all the game and player information and the setting all in one book. It's a beast. Um, and so the uh, player's handbook only includes just the game information. So if you wanted to DM this now and you had the PDF with the uh, setting information on it, and then a hard copy of the player's handbook, you would be just fine. That would work for you pretty well, I'm pretty sure. So just out of curiosity, yes. why would you recommend somebody to go back into these OSRs, especially specifically the one that you're talking about now? You know, I, I may not recommend it for everyone. It may not be for everyone. Um, but I think, uh, and, and I want to preface this with saying that I think 5th edition and Pathfinder are, are fine games. I think they're good. They're, you know, they, they have a, they're a large fan base and uh, there's a lot of great material available for those settings. Uh, my pro problem with 5th edition, I think it's starting to suffer from bloat. I was on my third campaign with fifth edition and one of the things that i noticed that really kind of uh, started to grate on me as a dungeon master was that magic seemed to solve everything and there really were no struggles and a prime example of that would be prestidigitation so i say and i narrate all right you've been traversing through the swamp for several hours you're knee deep in muck the, the foul stench of the swamp permeates your nostrils. Insects nip and bite at all your exposed skin, and you're covered head to toe on mud. But finally, after trudging through the mire, you reach the uh, bank at the far end, and you throw yourselves down in exhaustion. And the mage goes, okay, well, I cast press the digitation over and over again until we're all clean. I'm going to agree with you on that because I can say the same thing about Goodberry, how it takes some of the survival survival away. Mm -hmm. Because now you got berries that will keep you full for a day, every day. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's okay, there's a certain uh, readiness to Goodberry, all right. But cantrip cantrips are you can cast them unlimited yes. number of times, right? It's just I can just do it. It's a one foot by one foot square. Okay. Well, I just keep casting it over and over again until everybody's clean. So you kind of take away some of the uh, narration of the mm -hmm. of the game and then of course there's a lot of uh, uh, vision you know like for example if you are pack chained warlock you can get a familiar that will allow you to see in uh well first of all you can see in magical darkness yep. and you can see through the eyes of the familiar as long as you're on the same plane uh, so essentially the familiar goes in and explores the dungeon while everybody else waits outside yeah, that, that, that was one thing, because I'm playing a pack that a chain warlock right now. Yep. And that was one of the questions I had, you know, what is my distance? Because it really doesn't state. On the same plane. Exactly. On the same plane, you can see through your, see and hear, hear and even cast spells through your familiar. You can turn your familiar into little spiders so you can crawl into the door so you don't have to worry about the doors either. Yep. Uh, it's no longer a gritty game. It, it's it's not exactly the most gritty thing if you like a gritty down-to-earth dark fantasy game and i think uh like there might be some players not all of them some of them are still loving the game but there might be some players that are looking for a little bit different kind of challenge and those players are are definitely those that would probably enjoy the osr would enjoy the simplicity of it and the other thing i'll say about that is your casual player um 
probably is not utilizing all the cool things that are available for their character in fifth edition. I mean, we're, we, we're gamers and we've been doing this for a long time, but your fifth edition has brought in a lot of new people. And I can attest that I have recruited quite a few people into the, my own campaign who, once we got up to some of the higher levels, like seventh level and above the number of things that their characters got just overwhelmed them. And they just weren't there, you know, okay. I swing my sword, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that they just move on or it just took so long or they had a plan for something that they wanted to do that they thought would be cool. But then when they tried to do it, it really wasn't a, something they could, the rules allowed for. Right. Okay. And they just misread the rule or someone and, else's cool thing kind of trumped theirs. Exactly. Cause the game is homogenizing the, the characters. Everyone can cast magic. You got to try hard not to cast magic. And it, you know, when, when everyone has something special, it's no longer special. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's one of my pet peeves. I mean, I like fifth edition. We're having fun with it. We do a lot of home rules to kind of scale that back, but still, um, that's my biggest pet peeve with, with fifth edition right now is just everyone. It, they're, they're homogenizing the character classes. Uh, it, everything is being changed. Um, healing, for example, not to take away from anything, but you could be a 10th level fighter, have a hundred hit points, hypothetically, you take 99 points of damage, you take a long rest and you're automatically healed all those points as rules is written. Rules is written, but I would point out that one of the things that they did do is in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th edition, there are some great optional rules uh, for healing, which I implicated, implemented, which means that you uh, used your hit dice and that's, you had to take a full rest to recover your hit dice. That's what I yeah. do. Uh, if, if you, uh, you can either use your hit dice for X amount of hit points back and if it's a short rest, you take your hit dice, but you have it again. Right. So, uh, and then of course, healing kits, you have to use, I also require that you, you have to have to use healing kits in order to heal. So if you don't have any healing kits, you can't spend your hit dice. That's, I'm going to have to add that one in. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right. So, uh, remind our listeners where we can find you. Which one? Oh, all, for, no, uh, all our listeners, not just oh. one. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can find me. Yes, you personally. Yes. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Uh, (laughs) I I didn't quite hear that. So uh, I'm on YouTube, RPG Retro Reviews. Uh, My moniker is Captain Courageous. It's uh, C-A-P-T-C-O-R-A-J-U-S. So that's spelled weird. That name actually came about, that spelling came about because I was playing games online and I just got tired of trying to figure out what name to make up. That would that somebody else hadn't already made up that was unique, and that's what I came up with. And nobody has it, at least now, until it's went public. Now people are going to copy my cool name. You've been doing this for a while now. Is it- uh, I, my first video was in 2014. Wow, that, that's a good. That's a good amount of time. That's a hell of a run. Yeah, I think I'm <laughs> caught up on your catalog too. I'm just about there. Yeah, I got 166 videos that you can peruse, and it goes everything from. Uh, looking at uh, all the editions of the game, which some of my first videos, not the best production and mic quality guys, so I warn you now, but it gets better as you go. Uh, and then I really enjoy looking at a lot of the uh, old school classic modules, uh, like uh, I did the entire G series, you know, uh, against the Giants series. I did the entire D series, Descent into the Depths of the Earth. 
I did the uh, Queen of the Demon Web Pits uh, as well. So I did that entire, uh, you know, GDQ series, uh, which is, you know, I think that's like total of four videos there. Uh, the Queen of the Demon Web Pits was a two-parter. That was one of my favorite videos because there's so much interesting, interesting uh, historical context to that to that um, module. Because Gary Gygax did the previous six adventures, and then David Sutherland ended up doing the uh, the final module in the series. And uh, while Gary was very rah rah cheering in the opening part introduction of that module. Later on down the road, as we get into uh, listening to different forums, when the internet became available, Gary wasn't exactly happy with how things went. So that was that was interesting to uh, to put that historical context in there and talk about the early, you know, how things were the troubles at TSR, as it were, and find out that the demon web was actually inspired by a uh, mat table mat that David Souther was looking at with that crisscross pattern. Um, and that's what gave him the idea for the demon webs, which is still a cool, cool uh, idea. But I don't think Gary was exactly happy with that. So I, I try to look at historical context. I try to bring out some trivia and some fun, obscure facts with my videos and uh, try to learn as much as I can and then convey that to my audience. I, I think that's a lot of fun to have that kind of context given to you in addition to the coolness of the adventure itself. Yeah, that's my favorite part. You know, I get the nostalgia piece because a lot of those modules I've I've played through, I remember owning them, and then that historical context behind them that fills in all the gaps behind the scenes. It's it's a pretty neat it's a pretty neat thing. Like our hobby has a lot of lore outside of the the lore, you know, real world lore uh, attached to it, which makes it really interesting. Can you give us a hint on what we have to look forward to from retro RPG reviews? Is that I ha I can actually do that. I'm I'm getting ready to do a video on the Shadow Elves. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Shadow Elves, but that was a gazetteer supplement for the Mistara setting, and that module is absolutely a game changer in regards to the consequences for the world of Mastara as a whole. Uh, if you had been buying the Gazetteers from 1 through 12 at that time, you would have been slowly learning about what's going on in the world. And one of the interesting connections in the world of Mastara that they did, which I thought was really great, and you can credit Bruce Hurd with that, was he connected the modern-day Mastara with Dave Arneson's Blackmore setting which was said to take place three uh, 3,000 years before the current timeline, or 4,000 years before the current timeline. And so a Blackmore device exploded, tilting the world on its axis and creating havoc. And uh, so after that cataclysm, that leads to where things are in the current, in the current timeline. And then they actually did a uh, series, which I have reviewed fully on my channel, which is the DA1 through 4 series, which is your Blackmore, Temple of the Frog, uh, Duchy of Ten, and um, what's the other one? Uh, there's a fourth module in there uh, that, that I'm forgetting. But anyway, the Crash Spaceship, right? Yes. yes. So yeah. the, uh, the SS Beagle uh, 
Oh, and St- and Stephen the Rock, who was the uh, evil priest, high priest, who was actually in a, uh, one of the crew members for the SS Beagle, who went into the swamp and decided to indulge in world domination by uh, mutating frogs and a variety of other wild stuff. And so uh, what's interesting is that um, they took that concept and they, after those modules, those modules came out before the Gazetteer series, but that was in mind. And they took those modules and they said that uh, something happened. Some Blackmore scientists were messing with the uh, crash spaceship, the SSB. This is hundreds of years after that adventure. Uh, and they were never vague on the specifics, but it definitely, they did something wrong and the nuclear reactor of the spaceship exploded. And of course that caused the cataclysm. And what happened was the nuclear reactor uh, caught the, the immortals of Mastara off guard and they had to act. So they uh, infused the remnants of the um, nuclear reactor with magic to save the world. And they buried it deep in underneath the gra- underground, which interestingly enough, uh, ended up residing uh, directly underneath the school of wizardry in the uh, country of Galantry, which is a majocracy. And uh, so that's Gazetteer 5, uh, the uh, principalities of Gal- uh, Galantry. So that's that. So you're going up to um, Gazetteer 12 is when the shadow is the shadow elf supplement. And that is a group of underground elves. They're not drow. They have pale skin. They, a lot of them are born with these interesting birthmarks, which have these interesting patterns. And they consider those the priests and they go to the temple to be raised as clerics of Raphael, who is the, uh, the immortal patron of the shadow elves. And uh, they go around collecting uh, the soul stones, which are said to have the souls of uh, fallen and dead shadow elves. And you have to collect those souls so they'll be saved and bring them back to the temple. That's not really what's going on. And um, if you want to find out what's actually going on, you have to watch my video. That was a great set of gazetteers that they did. Amazing. They really were. Uh, uh, the Atrujan the, the clans is not so good, but uh, I would say that's an outlier. But man, what they did with the, uh, uh, the, with the various settings for the elves, the elves of Alfheim, the dwarves of Rockholm, uh, really the five shires, which is what they did for the halfling. They called them the hen. Oh, so that was really amazing. Um, uh, the uh, setting for the, uh, well, they did like a Viking setting, which was really cool. Uh, so th- they, they, really, they really infused a lot of historical cultures and uh, inter- interesting, uh, and, and, and then blended that into, the, and this is for the basic, what would you would say, the basic Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the other. That's the other important component. That was written. That was not written for AD and D. That was all written for the uh, basic Dungeons and Dragons game, and that made me want to play that setting, that system more than AD and D at the time. But I could never get anybody to play it for me because <laughs> <laughs> you, you say, "Hey, let's try this. Let's switch over to that." They go like, "Hey, man, the the ra- the the races are classes, dude." And then that was the end of it. <laughs> yeah. I recall like the 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 orc gazetteer and i forget the name of orcs it, but, of thar yeah 
being it's a little amazing. on the goofy side. It's amazingly and wonderfully goofy. Yeah. Uh, one of the cool supplements on there is the uh, fact that you can cut this section out and fold it up, and you have a uh, 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 Thar's Manual of Good Conduct. All of it misspelled, of course. And it goes into the various uh, things that orcs do in the Legion. Right? As, as they say. Uh, and the if you just want to sit down and end up in complete and total tears as you read through that you it, it's a good time uh but you could play orcs you could have a whole campaign as as humanoids in that gazetteer if you wanted to awesome i think you, I think you get those orcs of fires in the broken lands and one mustara it was a drive-through rpg has i don't know if they have all of them i've seen a few of them i seem to recall they have all of them but not all of them are available on print on demand but the orcs of thar is one of those that's available on print on demand at least it was last time I checked. They they sometimes change those things. <laughs> and you're um, you mentioned to me you're going to a con. So if we have any listeners out that way, they could keep their eyes open for you. Yes, I just want to. Yeah, I'm going to uh, Gary Con in March. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that I haven't been to a con in a long time. So I'll be up in Lake Geneva doing the pilgrimage, as it were. And uh, I'm going to be running two games there so if you if you're going to gary con you want to sign up uh when it, they're not signups are not available yet they're still finalizing the events um but the uh two events i'm running i'm running the rats in the walls for the hyperborea setting and i'm also running uh the tower of xenopus for using the original holmes basic set that was a good time when we played that yeah that was fun that was <laughs> thank you for running that uh, for us <laughs> That was an absolutely classic, classic good time. Yep. <laughs> Scott, I think you had a had a little bit of a challenge there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I've told that story a few times. That was a nail biter. Uh, yeah. That that was uh that was quite the quite the nail biter. <laughs> but it all turned out well. That's all that matters. Your viewer should know. Uh, let me narrate this a little bit. So going through the uh, dungeon, the Tower of Xenopus, the party had kind of done a large circle, but not exactly knowing where everything connected. And uh, so uh, assuming certain things that they didn't actually know, they figured they could get to the exit quicker through a different way they hadn't been before, which was true, um, but they were low on spells and hit points. And they found four skeletons who took them down mostly. <laughs> Yeah, who uh, got trashed. <laughs> so uh, Scott's dwarf got taken down, but he didn't die. He didn't die. Uh, we were playing 5th edition, so you roll the die to find out how many hours you're unconscious after you get to zero hit points, after you stabilize. So he wakes up several hours later to the sound of crunching and gnawing in the dark, dang dungeon. And as it turns out, ghouls had found his fallen comrades and were taking advantage of the uh, impromptu meal they discovered. <laughs> so he had to sneak away from the uh, ghouls with one hit point. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> I think that was Matt Fillion's, was it wizard or, or something? Yeah, it was cleric? A, cleric. Yeah. Yeah, they were eating poor Matt. 
I, was, I heard it was tasty. That was gruesome. <laughs> um, yeah, Apparently, that was a, it was uh, pretty, pretty good, ta- pretty ta- good tasting because the ghouls were distracted long enough for, and then of course the skeletons attacked the ghouls, and while they were fighting, you, you ran really fast for a little dwarf. <laughs> they were, uh, they were health conscious ghouls. My, my dwarf was clearly uh, not a heart healthy meal. <laughs> a lot of cholesterol wrapped up in that dwarf. Yeah, that was a that was a a, a good time. That was a the, very good the time. The Tower of Xenopist, a, a huge chunk of nostalgia, as as well. And I think I think that huge chunk of nostalgia is one of the reasons the OSRs are are doing so well. Is a flashback well, to the early I'd days. Say, I'd say nostalgia is a big factor because a lot of people that played forty years ago are getting back into the game, and then they're discovering the OSR. Um, but I'd also say that um, a lot of people who are, like I said earlier, are in some of the modern rule sets and we're looking for a different challenge and are interested in the fascinating history of Dungeons and Dragons migrate to the OSR as well. And I think that's an opportunity to perpetuate the OSR long after this generation of gamers is gone. Your generation. I- I'm going to live forever. Well, you know, or die trying. Well, uh, just, just, I'm, I'm half undead already, so. <laughs> just have to find his phylactery. <laughs> I have a deal for you. <laughs> and that's Talking the OSR with Dave Wiles from Retro RPG Reviews. We'll see you next time in the dojo. That's going to conclude this episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Please subscribe to the podcast for more great content. If you'd like to hear a particular topic, you can reach us out on Facebook at the Dungeon Masters Dojo. Or you can drop us an email at the Dungeon Masters Dojo at gmail.com. Thank you and have a good day. <laughs>